Father in heaven, thank you for this afternoon that we can spend in uh, discussion and to think about a practical aspect of our stewardship responsibilities. May you give us biblical principles to apply, and may your spirit guide us to be able to increase our talents for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Albert mentioned uh, earlier, we have a, my wife and I have a personal finance blog, savingthecrumbs.com. We don't just talk about investing. Investing is just one aspect, but the full gamut of biblical principles. So I encourage you to check it out if you want to uh, get more details. But if reading is not so much what you're interested in and you prefer to listen on Audioverse, in 2015, GYC, I actually did a six-hour-long seminar on this topic of personal finance. And uh, it covers the broader aspects of um, the various aspects of how to manage our money. And I think it's important to mention that although the emphasis here at Amen this hour and the next hour will be specifically on investing, uh, investing is not the silver bullet to solve all the other problems in our financial life. Uh, there are times when investing actually should be put on the back burner to deal with other more pressing responsibilities. And so I encourage you to get the full context if you have the time. Uh, GYC 2015, the seminar is called Beyond the Tithe. And so we're dealing with investing specifically. And I was told by the programming committee when they invited me to speak that this is a unique crowd because... Generally, physicians, dentists, medical professionals have uh, a few pennies to rub together. Those are the exact words. And so uh, we're, we're approaching this from that uh, standpoint, that we're dealing with individuals who are you know, already not particularly laden with debt, although I understand medical professionals usually come synonymously with a lot of debt. Uh, but the assumption is that there is higher earning potential in the audience and what, what we're dealing with. And so what I say here may not necessarily apply to just anybody. just want to make that clear. So investing the foundation. Let's, we need to have a scriptural basis for why we do what we do. And so I want to look through a number of passages, and then we're going to synthesize it together as we get started. Matthew 25, 27, it tells us, You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received my own with interest. We're familiar with the parable of the talents, three servants, Each were given their allotment of talents. The first two doubled their money. The third one buried the talent. And this is what the master said to that third servant when he came home expecting an increase. We know the story of the talents. And, you know, one of the interesting things about this parable is I feel like we apply it to everything under the sun frequently except money. We say our time, our influence, our strength, my musical ability, you know, whatever it is. But then money, the actual literal object that Jesus used in his parable, we say, nah, it's not so important. Well, what does the spirit of prophecy have to say about this? Council on Stewardship, page 113, paragraph 1. The followers of Christ are not to despise wealth. They are to look upon wealth as the Lord's entrusted talent. So money is a talent goes without saying, but sometimes it does bear repeating. By a wise use of his gifts, they may be eternally benefited, but we are to bear in mind the fact that God has not given us riches to use just as we shall fancy, to indulge impulse, to bestow, or withhold as we shall please. So that's the balancing statement. Yes, it's a talent to be increased, but we got to remember, it's not our talent. Even if we increase it, it still doesn't belong to us, 
The purpose for increasing it is for the Lord's purposes, to return to the master. That's the foundational principle here. But he does expect increase, uh, interest on his talents. Christ Optic Lessons 352, paragraph 1. Hoarded wealth is not merely useless, it is a curse. In this life, it is a snare to the soul, drawing the affections away from the heavenly treasure. So we're going to look at some passages that have a little bit of tension here. So on one hand, Christ expects to receive interest on the talents he's given to our management. But yet, we're told we are not to hoard the wealth. So we are to grow it, but not to hoard it. So what are we growing it for? Okay. And you know the parable, the story of the rich fool. He had, his barns were filled. He says, let's build bigger and bigger barns. Let's fill those and take an early retirement, take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But the Lord said, you fool, tonight your soul be required of thee. What shall a man gain if he shall gain the whole world, right? And lose his soul. So we have to keep in perspective. So why are we to grow the, uh, the talents? What are, what's God expecting of us to do with it? Councils on Stewardship, page 250, paragraph 2. Had you and your wife understood it to be a duty, Okay, we have a duty here that God enjoined upon you to deny your taste and your desires and make provision for the future. Instead of living merely for the present, you could have had a competency and your family have had the comforts of life. So here the spirit of prophecy gives the counsel, you ought to have made provision. It is a duty to make provision for the future, meaning saving up for future needs. That's another way of putting it. And it's interesting she uses the term our family could have the comforts of life. And I just want to make this point. It's that it's okay, based on spirit of prophecy, to have comforts of life. You know, we sometimes have this perspective when we think about stewardship that God is looking up there like, no, you need to give it all away, right? Until we live in a cardboard box and, you know, have one, you know, outfit to wear and our shoes are wearing out. Until we have given that much, then we're not truly being faithful. Well, actually, there's a balance here. We ought to take care of the health and the, and the needs of our family, and we actually should save up for it. It's a duty, we're told. Final statement here. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 156. It says, Brethren, awake from your life of selfishness and act like consistent Christians. The Lord requires you to economize your means. We use the term saving the crumbs on our blog. Economizing your means. Let every dollar not needed for your comfort flow into the treasury. So, Yes, it's okay to uh, take care of our family and provide some of the comforts of life, but whatever you don't need, God expects it to go back into his work. So let's summarize what we've discussed. This is uh, really the foundation of everything we're talking about here today. As servants, we are responsible to increase our talents, which includes money. All of our talents. Money is one of them. But the objective is to make provision for the future, for our future needs. So what does that mean? It means to have enough, to save up so we have enough, not to get filthy rich. Those are two very different goals. And once we do have enough, all the surplus should flow back into God's treasury. So that's the line of thinking based on scripture and the spirit of prophecy principles that we're looking at. Why should we invest? Well, here's why. What are we investing for? Here's what we're investing for. And how much are we investing for, right? That's the other point. And what do we do with any surplus? So that's the foundation. So I want to get into some principles now of how do we determine what is an acceptable, unacceptable form of investing. I'm just going to mention this here, and that is because we live in a sinful world, there is no such thing as a perfect investment. There just isn't. Something that is all upside, 
and no downside. The, only, the closest thing to that is uh, getting out of debt or investing in the Lord's work, laying up our treasures in the bank of heaven. And there are statements, Ellen White says, that it will accrue abundant interest up there and God will give it back to us once we arrive. So yes, besides those things, as far as investing here on this earth, there's, not, there's no perfect investment. So the best we can do is figure out what's the best alternative. What can we, uh, how can we determine what is, how to evaluate it? So I'm going to go through 10 principles, and if there is time, I'll get through all 10, but the 10th one I may not get to. But uh, let's get started with number one. Never invest in something you don't understand. I can't underscore this enough. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, Through wisdom is a house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So it's important for us in the process of increasing the talents that God has given to us to do so with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge. The simple application is never invest in something you don't understand. You've got to know what you're dealing with. So how do you, or what do we need to understand? Four questions. Number one, how does it make money? That's a surprisingly, uh, that's a question that surprisingly few people ask when they are confronted with the very rare or some extraordinary opportunity that seems to be a uh, path to instant riches. I'll share a story with you a, a little bit about this. The other question that even fewer people ask is, how can it lose money? The reality is there is always risk in, in investing, but it's not always well advertised. So we have to ask that question, how can it lose money? What's my risk? Okay. What are the costs? We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. And what are the rules and regulations? So clearly, you don't want to do anything illegal, but it's also helpful to know what are some safeguards, investor safeguards, and other rules of engagement in certain types of investing. So the simple rule of thumb, I have several rules of thumb about this, is that if it's too good to be true, it probably is when it comes to investing. Not long ago, I had some friends in Asia contact me, and they said, hey, we are ha- we're involved in this amazing investment. It's a gold investment, and it's promising a guaranteed 60% annual rate of return. And not only that, they said, you can get a referral bonus. So the more people you recruit to join, they'll tack on additional bonuses on top every month. And guess what? It's perfectly safe. My friends have been getting their regular checks every month, and they've actually earned their principal back already. If it, they're getting 60%, it doesn't take long to get your principal back, you understand. So they thought, what, they asked me, what, did, what do you think? So I asked them the question, so how does it make, how does it make money? <laughs> that was exactly what I was thinking. But I actually, I wanted to lead them through the process of thinking through it. And they said, it's a gold investment. Well, as it turns out, it was no gold investment at all. It was actually what, what they called it was spot gold trading, which is a type of Forex, a foreign exchange where gold happens to be one of the pairs of currencies that they traded against. But in reality, just like Dr. Bivens here astutely recognized, it's really not a Forex investment at all. Because guess what? If a firm can guarantee you 60% rate of return every year, that is three times the rate of what Warren Buffett earned over the past 50 years. So, and you know that the world has beaten a path to Warren Buffett's door to learn how to invest, and he got only 19% per year. And here's a firm that can promise 60%, and you can get a bonus. So, in the end, it was exactly that. It was a pyramid scheme. 
And so people would buy in at the bottom of the pyramid. That's why they had referral bonuses. And the inflow of the money would be what pays out to the guys at the top. And I told my friends, I said, look, you guys don't really understand what you're investing in. That's what we're talking about. It's too good to be true. And they said, oh, okay, I guess we better pull our money out. But guess what? It's too late. The website went down. I wrote a blog post about it. And I don't know if it's, I don't think I have that level of power. But the day my post went up, their website went down. And my friends called and they said, oh, you might be able to get 70% of your money back. But they kept putting it off. But you're going to have to wait six months. So I told my friends, well, sorry, but see you later to that money. So if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And by the way, speaking of Ponzi schemes, Bernie Madoff, the biggest Ponzi scheme ever, $65 billion or whatnot, he only guaranteed 12% or so. So just because it sounds uh, reasonable even, it doesn't necessarily mean we understand what's going on. The other point here is, do you understand, is simplicity trumps complexity. And uh, Warren Buffett actually, nine years ago, issued a bet. You may have heard of it. It's called the Million Dollar Bet. Warren Buffett bet hedge fund uh, managers that a simple S&P 500 index fund, which is very basic, available in most 401k programs, will beat any hedge fund in returns over 10 years. Only one hedge fund manager took him up on the bet, and it's nine years in, and Warren Buffett has smoked the hedge fund. I mean, like, burned them. Like, it's like 20% to like 2% or something like that. You can look it up, the Warren Buffett million dollar wager. And the point that Warren Buffett is trying to illustrate, and my point, simplicity beats complexity. Hedge funds are so complex, and we think, oh, they must have some secret sauce. But in the world of investing, simplicity is better than complexity. And it comes with costs as well, which is uh, part of complexity. And so the simple point, if you don't understand, walk away. So this is the first point, and it's the most important. Because if you don't understand what the investment is, how it works, how it can lose money, don't bother with the rest of the principles. Just walk away. Save yourself the time. But let's go to principle number two. It's related to this. We talked about costs a moment ago. We need to be mindful of costs and taxes. Why is that? Well, first of all, the rule of thumb in all of investing is that the lower the cost of investments, uh, the better the returns, generally speaking, if, especially if you're comparing apples with apples. So if you have a mutual fund with high expenses and a mutual fund with lower expenses, the one with lower expenses, generally speaking, nine times out of 10 is going to do better. Why is that? It's because costs compound. We learn about compounding interest. Well, costs compound as well, and it'll eat into your compound interest and returns. And also, there are a lot of hidden transaction costs you need to be aware of. Brokerage fees, commissions, hidden transaction charges, so on and so forth. And then, of course, there are taxes. I don't have time to talk a lot about this, and uh, it bores me to death. But tax-sheltered accounts, here's just a quick guide. You can snap a picture of some of the most common types of tax-sheltered accounts. Everyone's heard of the 401k, IRA, Roth IRAs, uh, the college savings funds, and also the HSA. I will just make this one point, and that is if you have a match for your 401k, you know, I said earlier there's no such thing as a risk-free investment. No, this is it. Because if they match you dollar for dollar up to 5%, the 5% you put in, you instantly doubled your money. That's a 100% rate of return with no risk. So take the match and move on with life. Okay, point number three. 
We need to beat inflation. And I get this principle from the parable of the talents because when we talk about the wicked servant, the wicked servant was not punished because he lost the talent. In fact, he preserved the talent marvelously. He buried it and he knew exactly where it was and he could reproduce the one talent that the master gave to him. The problem was he did not grow it. And that's why he was reprimanded. And when we think about inflation, we all know how inflation works. You know, you just think back to the cost of a gallon of gas, you know, a couple decades ago or loaf of bread. Inflation erodes purchasing power. And so if we are not beating inflation, in a sense, we are doing worse than burying our talent, in a sense. And so in order for us to grow the talents, it's not just growing it numerically. There's got to be in excess of inflation. And here in the United States, averaged over the past century, inflation has averaged about 3% annually. But to take this one step further, so what kinds of returns do we need to look for? Because we hear these marvelous, uh, tantalizing investment opportunities. You can double your money, 1,000% returns, you know, all these things. Facebook and Google might be throwing ads in your face. Do we have some sort of guidance? Well, the faithful talent, uh, faithful servants doubled their talents. And if you think about it, you know, I don't actually mind the one with the two talents bringing back only two talents because he still increased it by the same percentage, 100% return. I thought they both did equally well. So 100% total return, but how long did it take them to double their money? We're not told exactly. All we're told is that after a long time, the master comes back to settle their accounts. So what what was their annual rate of return, okay, if we factor a 3% annual inflation rate? So what I did, I took three dates, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and just ran the numbers, and accounting for inflation, how, how, what rate of return do I need to double my money in 10 years? It's approximately 10%. If it's 15 years, 8%. If it's 20 years, 6.5%, and you can see the trend. If it's longer than that, 25, 30, 40 years, the percentage continues to go down. So I'm not saying necessarily that the Bible is prescribing this as what we have to achieve, but it does give me the context to realize I don't need 1,000, 2,000, whatever rate, percent rates of return to actually accomplish the goal of meeting our needs. Because the point, remember our foundational quote earlier is, we're not investing to become the next Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. We're simply investing our means in such a manner to take care of our future needs, to take care of a family, provide the comforts of life, and to have a surplus to give back to God, not to be the richest man or woman or corpse in the graveyard. That's not the goal. <laughs> so the rate of return, yes, we have somewhat of a guideline here to give us a frame of reference, but the fact is it's better to get a lower rate of return and meet our needs rather than shooting for this sky-high rate of return, taking excessive risk and losing our shirts. Okay, So conservative uh, expectations. Point number four, diversify. The Bible tells us, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may come upon the earth. There's another way of putting it in modern parlance. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. So diversification, the principle is you don't want to put all of your investments in one place because all of your risk is concentrated in one place. So if all of your 
entire retirement savings is in one stock. Let's just use a modern day example. Let's say Sears. You know, you grew up and you saw the catalogs and your parents were big Sears customers and you have the Whirlpool, you know, washing machines or whatever, and you put your entire retirement savings in Sears and you're about to retire. Well, huh, sorry, Sears is going down the toilet if you haven't been keeping track of the news. So that's the principle. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You want to diversify. Yes, sir. Yes. Versus focusing on one investment you know a lot about, how would you? Okay, so the question is, just for the recording, the question is, diversify across, what's, you know, which would you prefer, investing in one thing that you know a lot about, or diversifying across multiple things that you know nothing about? Neither one. Neither one is a good option. So the best option is educate yourself on more options and diversify <laughs> amongst many things that you understand. Yeah. That's, and you don't have to diversify across a million things, but two is better than one, three is better than two. And the Bible, if we want to use that as a guideline, seven or eight, right, is what the Bible verse says. So that's my recommendation. Read a few books, follow a few blogs. You can uh, pick up things pretty quickly. So related to diversification is risk. So point number five here, you have to know your risk tolerance. To illustrate this, take a look at this picture. So just in the first two rows illustrates my point, the reaction. In the first row here, I heard a reaction, <gasps> whoa. In the second row, it was, oh no. <laughs> and that illustrates that we all have a different tolerance for risk. Okay? We have an internal risk meter. Now imagine if this was your portfolio. If overnight, maybe it was in 2008, for example, your retirement portfolio got cut in half, how would you feel? Okay, those are the types of things that uh, show us that we have a risk meter. So how do we tune the risk meter internally? Four things. Number one, we have to determine our investment time horizon. And this is one of the most important things. And investment time horizon in general means the closer you are to the time you need your money, the less risk you can take on. But the farther away you are, the more risk you can take on. So for someone who is nearly to retirement, they shouldn't be taking on as much risk as someone who is just starting out in their career. So the younger you are, the more risk you can take on. The older you are, the less risk you can take on. But even though that might be the case in general, if this young person is investing for, let's say, a five or 10 year time frame to pay for kids college or uh, to buy a house or whatever, their investment time frame is still short. So you don't want to go crazy with the risk, uh, even if you only have five to 10 years. Number two is back to point number one. You can see it's a theme here. Knowledge, how much do you know about this? So if someone who is a gifted carpenter or he's a contractor, uh, he knows how to build houses and fix houses, they can, that person can take a great deal more risk in the real estate market than someone like me who doesn't know diddly squat. I know a little bit, all right, so. Uh, but the fact is the more you know the more that mitigates the risk in the investment because you have the education to make careful decisions. Number three has to do with how reliant are you on this one investment for your support? So do you have other assets that you can rely on? Do you have other sources of income? Of course, social security and retirement is a big thing. So for those of you who are uh, more advanced in your career and in your life, it's more sure that you're gonna have social security than maybe some of these young people here in the front row. Right? So that's going to factor in 
to the question of how much risk can I take on this particular bucket of investments because I'm going to be more dependent on it. And number four is just your personal risk appetite or aversions, personality. Okay? And so I will mention this in that you know, in a husband and wife and in a family situation, frequently there are different personalities that are brought together by the Lord. And that's a good thing. But what that means is when we're talking about investment and risk and so forth, there needs to be communication between husband and wife so that the risk is agreed upon prior to making the leap. Uh, and I think it's not a relationship seminar, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> there are some messages on Audioverse to help you deal with that. Anyway, risk and return. So here's a rule of thumb. All investments have risk, and, and the relationship of risk is that the higher returns, the higher the risk. Okay, so my friends uh, and their 60% rate of return, the moment they said, oh, it's safe, I'm like, no, you guys don't really know what you're talking about. The fact that someone is promising 60%, the risk is significantly higher than if you were to get a CD at your bank for 1%, right? So this is something to always keep in mind. If they promise you higher returns, there are always higher risk. So diversifying our risk, I'm just going to make this point real, real short, and that is that when we think about savings accounts, we think of it as a low-risk investment. Well, that's true in the short term. But if you think of it in the long term, it's actually very high risk in the sense that it will f- almost for sure lag the rate of inflation. However, when we're looking at things like real estate and land and stock market, in the short term, they can be fairly high risk, especially if there's debt involved. But over the long term, the track record of these assets tend to outpace inflation. And so really, there's not the same level of risk at all times during a time horizon. And so what do we do? We talked about diversification a little bit. This is one way to diversify, is that if you have money that you need in the short term, money in the, and I define short term, and you can define it differently if you choose, but something uh, within five years, I want to preserve that capital. I don't want my value being cut. And so I put it in things like savings accounts, CDs, bonds, things of that nature, and it's lower risk, and generally it's backed by something, or it might be FDIC insured, over the long term, I need to put my money in something that's going to beat the rate of inflation. I can take a little bit more risk in money I don't need so, sh- uh, so soon. So the rule of thumb is save for the short term and invest for the long term. Okay, so that's one way to mitigate risk through diversification. Just one example. Okay, point number six. Principle number six, don't try to get rich quick, don't be greedy, and don't speculate. We, have a, we human beings have a fascination with wanting to get rich quick. And I think it is tied into our carnal nature. And uh, the 10th the commandment tells us, don't covet. Proverbs 13.11 says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28, verse 20. So go with me back to the 1600s in Holland. There was a craze, an investment fad, a craze over, of all things, tulips. Of course, Holland is still known for tulips, but back then it, it became a veritable bubble. So these uh, investors, they were better called speculators, would buy up uh, tulip bulbs expecting to sell them for two, three, four, five, a hundred, a thousand times more 
the next day or the next month. In fact, at the height of what they call tulip mania, tulip bulbs increased by as much as 1,100% value in one month. They got so expensive that some of the rarer bulbs, one bulb would sell for 10 times the annual salary of a middle, a middle class man. So if we just say $50,000 as US median income, household income today, one tulip would be selling for the equivalent of half a million dollars. One bulb. And there was this idea that this bubble was just going to keep increasing, but of course, bubbles always burst. It got to the point where they were creating derivative financial instruments to sell tulips. There would be options contracts where there's an option for you to buy an acre worth of tulip bulb before they were even dug. You take it to the market and they would bid on that contract. So it says the contract you can buy for $1,000, say, and they would bid it up, $10,000, $100,000 or whatnot. But when the bubble burst, as they always do, the entire Dutch economy came to a grinding halt. And you know, we think about the story and we think, tulips, that's so silly. We would never do that again, would we? You know, just about nine, 10 years ago, um, that was exactly what happened, wasn't it? Didn't happen to be something so silly as tulips, but it just happened to be real estate and uh, mortgage-backed securities and derivatives, financial derivative instruments, and it was the same story. What's the bottom line here? The point is, it was driven by this carnal desire to get rich quick, and speculation always leads to disaster. You think bit dollars are going in that direction? You mean Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Um, well. I'm not an expert on Bitcoin, but there, there's definitely speculation happening in Bitcoin, but Bitcoin in and of itself is a cryptocurrency. So as a technology, I don't view it as necessarily something that's inherently bad or wrong, but speculation is what people do with the asset. So like, there's nothing wrong with real estate, nothing wrong with tulips, in fact, but, but it's what people do with it. Just like paper money has nothing to back it. It's similar. It's currency. Supposed to, but it says uh, the full faith and credit of the United States. But you know, I'm not going to get into economics right now. But go ahead, Dr. Vinus. Well, we're going to talk about that in the next hour. So I'll hold on to that question. So tulip mania gives us the, an illustration of speculation versus investing. So what's the difference? We want to be investors, not speculators. How do you define the difference? Here are just a few helpful ways that I think about it. Speculation is hoping for quick riches, whereas investing is patient and steady for the long term. Speculation is the motive behind it is to get rich, whereas investing, the motive is to meet needs. Very different motive. Speculating, and this is important, speculating is based on arbitrary price movement, whereas investing is based on the expected productivity of an asset. So in a tulip situation, they were, hoping, they were thinking, I'll just buy this tulip, and someone else will pay more for it tomorrow. Whereas a real tulip investor would view it as a business. I'm looking at this farm. If I had better techniques, if I motivated my employees more and I treat them better, if I have better means of irrigation and harvesting and fertilizing, can I increase the yield of this land? And what's the, what's the price that I can sell in the market? And you know, there's a totally different mentality versus, okay, I'm gonna buy this contract, 
You know, how much can I get for it tomorrow? And so speculation asks the question, what's the price? Whereas investing, we ask, what is the value? So these, it may not be crystal clear, but this helps me somewhat gauge speculation versus investing. And I'll just mention this point too. Most of the time, speculation is driven more by the user or the investor. It originates from the person rather than innately in the asset itself. So it's an issue with the person, not so much in the asset, generally speaking. Okay, principle number seven, we need to value our time. I don't think I need to tell you this already, but uh, just to mention this, because there's a temptation. Our money should be working for us, not us working more for our money. The point of investing is you have this surplus capital, put it to work so you can focus on other things, your career, ministry, family, whatnot. It shouldn't be another job. So there's some, uh, sometimes people get into you know, stock options trading or even real estate investing, and it becomes either a serious hobby or another job. It's not to say that it's wrong necessarily if that's your interest, but just don't assume that you have to do that. You need to value your time as well because our time is also a talent to improve for the Lord. And here at Amen of all places, we understand there are a lot of demands on our time, particularly in the end times and the salvation of souls and ministry. We need our money to free us up to work more for the Lord, not tie us down more. Okay? Money is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master. P.T. Barnum once said, very true statement. Okay, point number eight. We need to have an exit strategy, or we need to consider liquidity. That's another way of thinking about it. And I get this from the Spirit of Prophecy. Councils and Stewardship, page 59, paragraph 4. I'm not going to read the full passage here, but uh, you have the reference. I'll read the bold. I was shown that it is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance before the time of trouble comes. And if they have their property on the altar and earnestly inquire of God for duty, he will teach them when to dispose of these things. So we're talking about the end of time, time of trouble. Houses and lands will be of no use to the saints during that time. So we understand within the prophetic context, there will be a time when God says, sell it all. Councils on Stewardship, the next page, page 60. I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. But if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. I will read this one because I think it's good context. How have uh, Some have been required to dispose of their property in times past to sustain the Avon cause, while others have been permitted to keep theirs until a time of need. Then as the cause needs it, it is their duty to sell. So what we see here is Ellen White tells us what's the purpose for God's people selling their assets at the end of time. Very important point. It is not for self-preservation. We have this idea that when we think about, oh, the end times, we have to you know, sell everything. We have this mentality like we're going to keep everything we have as long as possible. And then right before the Sunday law hits, okay, sell everything, now run to the hills. But the point of what we're told here is that the reason that God moves upon his people to sell is to sustain the cause. In times past, to sustain the Advent cause. And the reality of the matter is, if everyone sells at the last moment, where is that money going to be put into God's work? How is it going to be applied for the salvation of souls? So my point is, we don't know that we're told right here, we're not all expected to sell all at the same time. And so that's something that the Lord has to guide us in. And in uh, effect, in our investments, we need to always have that in mind because the Lord may move upon us to sell our practice, to sell our home for the advancement of God's work.
That's not up to me to tell you when that is. That's up to the Lord. But here's the principle summarized. It is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance or liquidate before the time of trouble. God does not require all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. We are to inquire of God for duty, and he will teach you when to sell. And we, that means, right now, we need to consider the liquidity of our investments. I'm not saying all of our investments must be liquid, but we need to understand what it will take to liquidate and also evaluate the full portfolio so we're not putting everything in something that's going to take months to unravel uh, when perhaps there are better ways. All right, so point number nine. And this may actually uh, touch on Daniel's question earlier. So morality. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whatsoever therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're familiar with this verse. And so... This whatsoever you do must necessarily also impact how we manage our money and how we invest. And so this comes to the topic of ethical investing. And I could spend a whole hour talking about this, but let me try to condense it. And I'll just mention this. I have a long article, a long series on my blog where I go into far deeper detail. Uh, So if you feel like I didn't fully answer your question here, uh, I recommend you check that out. But here, let me try to summarize. When it comes to ethical investing, there are really two perspectives within uh, our worldview. The first is that we need to avoid avoid investments that are directly involved with unethical products and industries. And when I say investments, you know, that term, we can actually substitute that for a broader term. Just all of our financial interactions, all of our business interactions in the marketplace, whether as a customer, as an employee, as a partner, or as an investor. Okay? We are being involved with them. The, that's the first perspective. The second perspective is we must avoid any investments or any financial dealings or uh, involvement with companies, mutual funds, etc., that contain even an indirect or incidental interest in any product or industry that would be deemed unethical. So you understand the difference between the two views. One is we are responsible for our direct decisions what businesses I do business with, invest in, am a customer with, am a partner with. The second one says not only are we responsible for those in our tier, first tier of uh, influence, but also the second and the third level of involvement and the indirect affiliations that they may have. I think we would agree that number two is ideal. If we can have moral purity in all of our investments, even indirectly beyond the first and second and third levels. That's ideal. The question is, is it realistic? And is it tenable? Not if it's a mutual fund. And not just mutual fund, even in our day-to-day financial interactions, because have you, do you have a bank account? Yeah. Is there any guarantee that that bank is not involved in some morally unscrupulous activity? For example, Wells Fargo just happens to be the one that's in the news, but Bank of America, Citibank, you name it, the reality is they're loaning money to whoever, and that interest they're earning actually comes back into our uh, investments as well as a form of interest. So, and our taxes and so forth, you can go down the line. So what does the Bible give us as counsel? Okay, I want to look at what the Bible has to say. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10, it says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But pause, interjection here, qualification. 
not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, do not associate with sexually immoral people within the church because that's where the church has jurisdiction. We have church discipline and various things that the church has a responsibility to do. But he says, but let me make this clear. I'm not talking about the secular marketplace where you have to interact with other business people who are immoral and greedy, who are swindlers and idolaters. And what does he basically say? Because it's untenable. Because we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And we do live in an imperfect and sinful world. And Paul just makes the case, the only way for you to be completely pure of those kind of interactions, you would have to go to heaven. And so one of these days, we will. And at that point, we won't have to worry about this anymore. But another passage that I think of is in Matthew 5, verse 43 to 45. And I actually just cut out the last section here. It says, For he, or God, makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So what does that mean? All of the resources that enable the activities of the unrighteous comes from the hand of God. And so if we have a moral rule that says we are responsible not only for our direct decisions and choices and interactions, but also on what that decision incidentally or indirectly affects that may be immoral, we're going to implicate God and make him complicit with all the evils that happen in the world. So that's a moral standard that even God cannot uphold. And that's what I mean. It is ideal, but in a sinful world, with sin in the world, I don't believe it is tenable for us to expect that in all of our financial dealings, not just financial, but in our uh, living in the world. So to, so to summarize the application of what I'm saying, we need to recognize what, this, what Scripture does and doesn't require of us, and don't create a moral rule that's beyond what God requires. You know, when we say we're people of the book, it means sticking to what God says, not lagging behind, but not running ahead either. Okay? Number two, make sure all of our direct interactions are morally pure and that we are following God's clearly revealed will. So who do we partner with? Who are we doing business with in our immediate circle of influence? And then we are to do our best with the remaining indirect interactions. We're not to do nothing. We do our, the best that we can, but... We recognize that we live in an imperfect and sinful world and that we shouldn't neglect major duties while quibbling over minor matters to not strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, in other words. So we need to be careful because I've talked with friends who have uh, somewhat almost a, a, a paralysis, you know, a crisis of conscience because how can I put money in a bank that operates on Sabbath? You know, they were really struggling with this. And I don't fault them you know, for having those kinds of of questions, but my point, the, I do have money in the bank, and my point is when I look at this situation, there is an obligation for me to make financial provision for my family and make sure that it's in a reasonable, safe place, and not neglect the major duties over some that might be more minor matters. And we do the best we can within the scope of our uh, decision-making ability. So incidentally, specifically to investing now, in Deuteronomy 15, verse 66, we read this, For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations and shalt not borrow. So this is God, one of his blessings to the nation of Israel if they are obedient. So this is like God's ideal for the children of Israel. 
And the ideal is that they will be blessed materially in their possessions and that they will have a surplus to invest. That's what lending is. It's a form of investing. And interestingly enough, they are to lend to many nations, which necessarily represent Gentile and heathen nations. And so when I look at this, I think God could have kept all of the investment dollars within the nation of Israel. But that wasn't his ideal. He actually encouraged the children of Israel to invest in other nations. And I believe embedded within that is also an outreach mandate. It's not just to earn money, but there is an influence uh, factor as well. But uh, it does lead me to think, well, would they not then be complicit in the evils that may be uh, allowed by the investment. Perhaps that's speculating more than what scripture reveals, but at any rate, it does give me uh, some guidance that God does not uh, prevent us from investing in or working within the, within the secular financial industry and the financial markets. And like I said, I have a whole article. It's far more detailed than what I have time to go over with you uh, this afternoon. But uh, we need to wrap things up. So we did hit number 10. So let me try to finish this up quickly. The 10th principle is to start now. We need to take advantage of the power of compound interest by making time our ally. So Thrifty Tiffany and Spendy Sally, let me use this as an example. They're both the same age, young ladies, uh, and they graduated school at the same time. And Tiffany on this side here decides to save $2,000 a year from age 20 to 30. For 10 years, she's going to save $2,000 a year. She invested at an 8% rate of return, uh, and people always ask, where do you get 8%? I use S&P 500 you know, index fund over the past 100 years, averaged out to roughly 8%. That's where I got the number. And she invests $20,000 of, uh, of her own money over 10 years. Sally, on the other hand, says, I'm still young. I'm going to get married first, buy a house, get settled in my career, and I'll save more later. So the day that they turn 30, Tiffany stops saving and Sally starts saving. And she saves the same amount, $2,000 a year from 30 to 65, also 8% rate of return. And so for 35 years, she actually puts in $70,000 of her own money. So when they get ready to retire at 65, who's got more money? I sort of set you up, didn't I? Just by the way I named them. <laughs> so you are correct. In 10 years, I'm sorry, at 35, uh, 35 years, 65, Tiffany will have half a million dollars, whereas Sally will only have 380000 And what happened? This is the graph of their investment growth. You see, for the first 10 years, Tiffany was saving unopposed. There was no one keeping up with her. And compound interest is that marvelous thing where interest earns interest on itself. And so it's not a linear progression. You notice it's an exponential curve. And so because the money was, the, the lump sum was already compounding on itself for 10 years, even though Sally put a great deal more money into it over a longer period of time, she could never catch up. So what's the point of this illustration? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. We should have started a long time ago, of course, but we can't go back in time. What we do have today, and so the best thing to do is to make the best use of today. Now, I will have to make this little interjection because I'm here at Amen. Just an FYI for MDs and DDSs. If I was in Loma Linda and there were medical students, this might make uh, some people take notice. But you notice that 
medical professionals, doctors and dentists in particular, they do have higher earning potential. But how do doctors and dentists achieve that higher earning potential? Well, they have to go through extended education, especially if you have you know, high level of specialization. And generally speaking, we can roughly estimate that means a 10-year shorter investment period because you can't start as early. Three minutes, okay, I'm wrapping up. And that also comes with a high debt load. Well, I think we all understand how that works. $400,000 last I heard from Loma Linda Dental School. Probably more than that now, I don't know. And then there are high professional expenses that come along with the career. And then there's generally a lifestyle inflation that comes along. So that also means that for the final total amount that needs to be saved, there's generally a higher number as well. And so what I'm saying, yes, we should start now, but doctors, even though the world looks at physicians as you know, flowing with gold bars or something, you're actually at a disadvantage in a real sense because time is the secret in ingredient to compound interest investing. And so what's the point here? Doctors just have to save more. You have less time. But you do earn more, but you have more debt. And uh, so this is one of those things that uh, you have to prayerfully consider how to budget and to manage your finances in such a way to meet those goals that will take care of your family and still return means to the Lord. So with these principles, what we have here is we have a scorecard. And the next hour, we're going to apply this scorecard to a number of common investment types to see how do we rank them. Okay, so do I understand? Can it beat inflation? Is it low cost, diversified, speculative? How much time does it take to manage investment risk, liquidity, and moral clarity? And we'll explain a little bit more before we get into the next session. But I was given the three-minute warning, and so I did end on time. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Let's close with prayer, and then we'll have to get ready for the next session, and we can take questions uh, after that. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we can spend. and reviewing a few principles that hopefully can help us apply, uh, be applied to our personal financial decisions, to our stewardship of your means. Help us to ever keep in mind who we work for and that none of this belongs to us. And as ta uh, servants with talents hoping to increase it for your glory, that you will help us to be able to be faithful uh, when you return uh, to, to take account of what you have given to our care. Bless us and guide us also in our next session as we begin soon, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.